Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and a new member for the book club, uh, James Knight, joins me down the line. James, welcome to the book club. Greetings from a slightly warm loft in southeast London, Eamon, and it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you very much for getting in touch by emailing mcbcpodcast at gmail.com um, to talk about... I think we were talking about the podcast feed, but we also got onto the subject of what book you might choose to come on. Um, so, before we get to that, because you're a first-timer, what uh, tell us about your 2000 AD or comics origin story. Sure. Well, it was interesting thinking about this, because I had to sort of cast my mind back, which I hadn't done for a very long time. And I think probably, uh, like a lot of people, uh, comics have been around almost forever. So I was big into the Beano and the Dandy. I was a Beano club member. I had the Nasher badge with the googly eyes inside my blazer. And uh, Red Asterix and Tintin, of course. And I was a big, uh, I bought my pile that I now read to my kids, huge Calvin and Hobbes fan. Uh, and that was wonderful, um, a wonderful podcast you did with Tony. I, uh, I very much enjoyed. You very uh, eloquently expressed quite what makes those Calvin books special. And it is amazing that I can still read them on the loo and I can now read them to my seven-year-old daughter. Um, so that was a huge one for me. Um, and then my dad uh, read war comics as a kid and he had kept a box of those. So those were hanging around. Uh, the ones I remember were Commando and War Picture Library. And I suspect that there was some Victor in there as well, but I can't remember. I did ask him, and he's got no memory. Um, and those war comics did come in uh, in, a, in an anecdote that might come up later. But, yes, so as soon as I could buy comics for myself with my very small amount of pocket money, I was buying a few Marvel kind of UK kind of reprints of US comics. But then fairly soon after, I encountered maybe slightly unusually not the prog but the Meg. And the prog was there on the shelf, but because I had such little money, the Meg seemed like a more enticing option because it only it came out less frequently and it was bigger. So the first uh, issue I bought actually contained the story or one of the stories that we're going to discuss today. Uh, so it was issue 38 of the magazine, which had the taxidermist Olympics cover on and had uh, what nine-year-old me found an extraordinary, rarely kind of shocking and thrilling story about there being uh, freestyle sex at the Olympics in this amazing future. Um, and it did also contain uh, the first part of the, the Shimura story that uh, we're going to discuss today. And I did, I stuck with the Meg and there was a great shop. I grew up in Kingston-upon-Thames and there was a shop called Books, Bits and Bobs and they stocked lots of back issues. So I managed to kind of sporadically pick up bits and bobs of old literally <laughs> of old progs and megs but the thing that i always found frustrating as something of a completist was i could never get complete runs of stories and the trade paperbacks were not they just weren't around um and then not probably not that long after that uh, an, an actual comic shop opened in kingston in the Bentall Centre. But unfortunately, that closed after about two months. There was a thrilling period where I got some US Marvel comics. But then before I knew it, it, it was closed again. But I remember chatting to the guy and I said, well, there, it, there was a big sign up saying they were closing. I said, well, are there any other comic shops you know of? And he says, oh, yeah, there's one in Richmond called They Walk Among Us. And uh, people that are familiar with sort of South London may remember that that original They Walk Among Us site is the comic shop that's in Spaced. It used to be behind a, kind of like an alleyway. And that shop moved sites to what is now Raygun Comics. They're, they're still open. Um, but that's kind of a South London kind of institution, been around for years. So I was reading at that point more of what I later discovered were kind of 2000 AD British Invasion writers. So was bigger to Garth Ennis, Preacher, Hitman. Uh, was a huge Warren Ellis fan, who I've sort of discovered since I got out of comics and come back. He's a bit uh, persona non grata these days, but I still don't know exactly what's going on there. But never mind. I was a huge Transmet fan. I read uh, The Authority, massive planetary fan, anything Ellis I loved, and obviously Gaiman. And I, I didn't really realise, it was only really that when I, I very occasionally bought The Wizard magazine, usually when it featured one of those guys who I liked so much so that I could read an interview with them to find out. I always liked finding out about the context of things that I slowly realized, wow, all these English guys who I like, they all used to write in 2000 AD. And slowly going back through some of those back issues that I picked up in books, bits of books, I was like, oh, look, here's, you know, here's Garth writing Dread. And it all began to kind of um, make sense. And then I think the 
the sort of the next stop on the train for me was I used to skateboard and I'd go up to town to skate on the South Bank and then I'd skate over the bridge into town to Gosh, the old Gosh, with the Batman logo outside opposite the British Museum uh, in sort of uh, Russell Square. And that was really where I got into more kind of fantagraphics, drawn and quarterly, was huge into Seth. It's a good life if you don't weaken is one of my all-time favorites. Chester Brown, Love and Rockets, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I used to go in there very regularly. And thinking about this to explain this whole story to you of my kind of comics uh, origin story, it made me kind of realize that going to Gosh in a weird way was what ended me in my first phase of comics because I used to go in there so regularly that just after my 16th birthday, inside my pull list, my standing order, was a letter that I have dug out of my archives that's the uh, not very good for audio, but here it is. And it was an invitation to work at Gosh on Saturdays, which for me was, you know, that was like seventh heaven. Couldn't believe it. Um, and at the same time, so I, was, I would have been GCSE age, basically. And I also did sport quite seriously. And it was already a bone of contention that I used to go skateboarding up to London and waste my pocket money in Gosh with my dad. And when I came back very excitedly with my clutching my letter saying, you'd never believe it, I could get a Saturday job in Gosh. My dad said, no way, Jose. And that, was, uh, that wasn't allowed because I had to focus on the schoolwork and the sport. And I think now that I look back, I think that was actually quite a traumatic event because it almost, I was so embarrassed to go back and say, I can't take this amazing job that you've offered me that I kind of petered out going to gosh. I kind of let my standing order slip. I eventually kind of called them back sheepishly and said, I have to cancel my standing order. Um, And I really kind of stopped buying comics essentially since then. I mean, I went to university in Nottingham and there was a great shop up there that I assume is still open called page 45. And I drop in there and pick up, you know, again, drawn in quarterly type stuff. And it was, it was a long, there was a long period where I didn't engage at all, but then, I got back into role-playing games uh, during the lockdown. And some of the guys that play role-playing games that I kind of became involved with, they were also big kind of 2000 AD heads. And uh, one of the main guys is a chap called at Daily Dwarf on Twitter, whose bio says everything comes back to White Dwarf, which is actually taken from a, a podcast that many 2000 AD fans may be familiar with. And he's a huge 2000 AD head. And um, he and some other guys at a con last November ran a game that was called Grogmania, because the podcast that's one of the kind of binding glues of this scene is called The Grognard Files, and a Grognard's an old RPG head. And it was Grogmania based on Blockmania, and it was a massive seven-table multiplayer game where everyone played a block, and we were we were playing in Blockmania, and it was amazing. And there was oopty baggers and stooky glanders and fatty-eating competitions, and I was like, oh, I remember all this stuff. This is great. And um, I got chatting to Daily Dwarf afterwards, and he's one of those guys that, unlike many, he, he never stopped uh, reading the prog. And I had a great chat with him in the pub. And not long after that, I found myself reading online. And a month later, I had a print sub. And now I'm back reading the prog and the magazine. And I discovered Space Spinner 2000 and your podcast. And here I am. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> quite a story, quite a journey. <laughs> it is, yeah. Okay, well, let's get to today's book. You've given us a hint already. Tell us what you've picked to come on the book club with. Well, the book I picked, as I mentioned, in that in that very first Meg was the, the first Shimura story. So the book I've chosen is Hondo City Law, which is a rebellion trade collection of stories in Hondo that were intermittently, mainly mainly in the magazine, although the first one is, is was in the prog. Um, and I did a massive case files reread right up to complete case files 17 so up to sort of judgment day so i'd encountered that story when i did that reread i don't think i'm pretty sure i didn't read that one back in the day uh which is a wagner story but the vast majority of them are robbie morrison's hondo city tales and it's one of two trades that rebellion put out the other one's called hondo city justice and there is also a shimura trade uh that I think I, I consulted Barney, and I think that does have a few stories that aren't in these two, that are Shimura solo tales. But these two, Hondo City Law and Hondo City Justice, co- um, compile the majority of the Hondo City tales, I think. Um, so, yeah, and I think you, you might have the vital statistics in terms of contributors. Well, yes, you've mentioned John Wagner and Robbie Morrison writing, Colin McNeil, Frank Quitely, Andy Clark, and Neil Googe on art. 
There's some colours by Gary Caldwell in there, letters Ellie Dibble and Annie Parkhouse, all the editors, it seems. And you're right, yes, Progs 608 to 611 from sort of 1989-ish. And then we jump forward to 1993 and we get to the magazine. Uh, well, we've got quite a few magazine stories running up until... Um, do we go as far up as 2004, possibly? Um, I think according, according to the uh, the copyright, as far as 2010. 2010, yeah. Yes. There we yeah. go, right. Okay, so, you know, it's one of the first stories when you picked up the magazine. Um, is that why you've chosen it for the book club? It is, it is partly. Um, I think it really struck me, because in that first uh, magazine, it was a Mechanismo Dread story, and there was the taxidermist story, and it was quite a lot that felt Mega City One-ish, as I guess that the Meg was back in those days, the magazine. Uh, and this just felt so different. And I had already encountered Akira at that point, and I'd watched Blade Runner, which to this day, both of those things are, you know, massive for me. And I was like, wow, this is like, you know, it's Dread mixed with Akira. And I had uh, very kind of uh, precociously kind of started uh, consuming Kurosawa. And I'd, I'd managed to get some old VHSs from a charity shop of some Kurosawa. And I was like, wow, because there is this mix of the traditional shogun ronin elements mixed with the kind of the futuristic in these stories. And it all just left a massive impression. And the, uh, the baddie in the initial Shimura arc is also particularly uh, memorable. And there are some, uh, there are definitely some panels in there that remain seared. Even even though I forgot comics, there are certain panels in this first Shimura story that remain seared into my retinas and brain cells. Okay, well, give us the setup before we start asking you some specific questions about the writing and the art. Um, tell us a little bit about Hondo City and the stories that are contained in this first volume. Hondo City is the it's the kind of the Tokyo analog to Mega City One. I guess, and it's a sort of a, a similarly futuristic megalopolis, uh, and it and it is very similar to the, the kind of the neo Tokyo of, of Akira, um, and I think we'll probably discuss a bit kind of manga influence um, at some point. Uh, and as I said, it, it really does meld the kind of the traditional, both in terms of the architecture, the clothing, the weaponry of the traditional with the futuristic. Uh, which is a really nice conceit, and that kind of remains consistent throughout. It kind of develops through the stories, the bikes in particular. You see like a nice development of how the bikes uh, operate. They get more futuristic and more hovery as time goes on. And the judges' uniforms, I mean, it's a recurring thing throughout kind of the prog and the meg that the the judges in the non-Mega City One cities have a, have a unique uh, vibe to them. And as much as I was a sort of a fan of the kind of the Britsit liony vibe and the Irish vibe, the the uh, the Hondo judges always kind of stood out to me. Just an amazing kind of mix of yeah, the kind of the, the samurai with the futuristic. They've got incredible helmets and shoulder pads. It's just a great look, and the helmets are quite exaggerated. I, I think I mentioned you, they're almost some sometimes they're almost judder like in how kind of uh, extended some of the uh, the helmets look, and. There is a kind of a, a balance between most of the stories feature some kind of balance between the the judges of Hondo City, the organised crime element, and uh, the, the kind of the, the yakuza, and then the kind of the corporate element. And it's those three things and how they interact and the very blurred lines. It's it seems more blurred than it is in Mega City One. Often, I know there are often bent judges in Mega City One, but it really is this kind of symbiotic relationship between those three factions that often causes the uh, it catalyzes the drama of the stories. And before we mention some of the key judges uh, in Hondo City, can we just say that the technology, the sort of like Japanese technology, seems to be. Uh, it's certainly different to Mega City One. It possibly seems more advanced than Mega City One. That's right, yeah. And it, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's something that feels very of that 90s period in that it's very kind of, um, 
it's like uh, biomechanical. There's a lot of kind of body linkage. Their uniforms linked to their bodies. And the, the first story, we'll look at the first Shimura story, very much features that in terms of the, the big bad. Um, so there's a lot of this kind of like biotechnology that seems very much an, uh, of that time in terms of the kind of the cyberpunk kind of preoccupation. And it's interesting thinking of it in the current context where a lot of that's actually kind of come back again now. If you think a lot of these kind of billionaires who have these kind of transhumanist dreams it's it's very analogous to the big bad in this first shimura story um so it's something that was it seems very of a piece of that 90s kind of moment and and again very kind of there were a lot of manga stories that kind of had that element to them and it's kind of almost come back around now so reading it in the context of today was really interesting as well and what about the judges themselves because obviously there's some key figures running through the stories in this book that's right, yeah. So in, in the first story, which is the Wagner story that kind of predates the Morrison stuff, you're, you're introduced to um, Sadhu, who's, who's almost a kind of a – he's almost more like a straight dread analogue. He's uh, prone to a grunt rather than a sentence, and he's very stern and uh, an, an expert with his tendo stick. And as you move kind of beyond that period, you have this figure of Shimura who's a uh, – a slightly kind of uh, aloof, quixotic figure, very much embodying kind of the uh, the archetype of the Ronin kind of samurai master, and his his initiate is uh, Inspector, or she becomes Inspector Inaba. And in the the first story, Shimura, it's not um, it's not quite a hot dog run. It's it's probably closer to the twenty twelve film in that it's uh, she's she's being assessed to try and make inspector and she's the first female initiate who's being uh who's made it to that that stage essentially so that the story is um it also has that element of her being inspected by shimura to see if she makes it to inspector um and yeah she she's a fairly crucial figure in this first round of stories and then uh she goes on and we pick up the final judge his name is currently escaping me. <laughs> is it Ashawa? Is that how you say it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and she, well, she, she's also an interesting figure because she's almost like a kind of a, a slight Judge Anderson analog in that she's a, a, a side judge. And uh, in one of the stories, we learn more about her kind of background and how she's kind of uh, come to gain these psionic powers. So in a way, Inaba kind of goes full circle, and the the uh, the initiate becomes the inspector. So you kind of get, because of the, the span of the collection of these stories, it's really an Arbor story in a lot of ways that you follow. And Shimura becomes a slightly more kind of peripheral but constant presence. And, and, and Dread does pop up occasionally. <laughs> well, let's focus in on the first story, Shimura. So we'll skip past uh, John Wagner and Colin McNeil's uh, introduction of Our Man in Honda City. We might come back to it in a moment. But I know you particularly wanted to focus on the Shimura story and Robbie Morrison's writing. How well do you think he handles the sort of like the location and the setup and the technology uh, in writing these stories? Well, it's interesting, and I think this might be something that kind of loops us back to the Wagner thing. I mean, I think he does a I think he does a really good job in terms of as we were discussing that kind of balance between tradition and technology, with a particular emphasis on this biotechnological kind of body modification angle and also creating that sort of trifecta of power between the judges in Hondo, organized crime, Yakuza and, and corporate power, which is kind of very strong and they're all kind of imbricated with each other. And I think he does a good job of that. But as with the first story, I think this is something that we can't avoid <laughs> discussing. There is a kind of difficulty when this is coming clearly from a kind of like a Western gaze looking east and the elements of Orientalism are played, I would say, or dealt with more deftly than in the initial story. But it does tread that line of being... Uh, I think I think it's clear that Morrison kind of is very interested in that culture, and and I almost certainly, I mean, it's conjecture, must have been influenced by manga, I, I think, um, and just being careful with looking at it through kind of twenty twenty three eyes, being careful that of the elements of kind of stereotyping or essentialism um, that. It's not, I would say, it's definitely not as clunky as in the first story, but it does kind of uh, lean slightly on the archetypes, I think. 
Yeah, and I mean, those archetypes, you mentioned that cyberpunk was having a moment in the 90s. And certainly, I think we'd been introduced to the idea of manga, probably by Frank Miller in the 80s. And Akira and things like that were certainly having their moments as well. But as also, you mentioned in our notes, there's various other bits of uh, Japanese film and pop culture that he manages to weave in as well. Yeah, I think there's definitely, like you said, there's the kind of the, the cyberpunk aspect and rave culture was also kind of massively coming in. And if you think like that's in Akira too, you know, there's lots of kind of pill popping and that kind of street culture and lots of that within the kind of the street level hooliganism that occurs, the bossazuku, I think they're called, who are the kind of the street criminals. And Morrison himself does mention in his intro that he's directly influenced by the kind of the Kurosawa element that we mentioned previously. And he kind of makes that analog himself. And I think I mentioned that if you think about it at times, you know, dread can also be a kind of a Western story. And there's that direct analogy between things like Sergio Leone's take on the Seven Samurai and how those two things are kind of interacting and kind of feeding off of each other and influencing each other. So yeah, I think that that's yeah, it's all it's all definitely interesting and all there. So I think yeah, I think I mean to to me it's kind of it, it's successfully on the side of homage. I think the, the Morrison stuff on balance. And you know, dealing with the judges, he creates new judges because Sadu obviously had had um, uh, was being used elsewhere. Um, came, it turns up in Judgment Day, obviously. Yeah. Where I think, if I remember rightly, him and Dread get to have their rematch, don't they? That's right. Yeah, it's unfinished business. Uh, after the initial story, uh, Dredd kind of lets him have it because he's got uh, slightly ulterior motives, but Dredd is not one for letting uh, that particular sleeping dog lie. And yeah, I think having read it quite recently, I think it does get resolved in Judgment Day. So he introduces new characters and um, he manages, I think, to do a pretty memorable job with Shimura and Inaba. Yeah, I think so. Like I said, I mean, Shimura definitely embodies this um, the, the archetype of the ronin and the samurai. But he's he's a very kind of convincing character. And like I said, he's he's a constant presence throughout the stories in this book. And without going too far into spoilers, he does end up literally becoming the Ronin in that he kind of leaves the Justice Department and he becomes a kind of a champion of the poor in one of the, the most kind of um, slum-ridden areas of Hondo and becomes a kind of a, you know, a defender for the, uh, for the innocent. And there's... Again, because he has he comes from that tradition, there's a, there's a moment at the end of the story where the resolution is that the technology itself is forsaken and kind of Shimura kind of, you know, it, it's almost that's almost like Inaba's point of graduation is that they, they no longer rely on the technology to resolve the issue that's in front of them. Um, and yeah, Inaba too is a, I mean, I, I, I really like her as a character. I think she's great kind of throughout. And she's she kind of learns. She does have again. There's a, there's a touch of the Anderson about her in that she's slightly quippy, slightly kind of you know she, she's quite bright and um, often has like kind of a comeback line, and is slightly um, which which is interesting because it's atypical in a way because you you'd think of a lot of um, Japanese culture being very deferential to authority, whereas both Shimura and Inaba in different ways aren't aren't don't aren't fully compliant. So they both have this kind of aspect of the maverick to them that slightly puts them at odds with the the more typical uh kind of middle management layer of the uh of the hondo city um justice department and you know you talked about the technology you talked about how the judges have this bio link with their weapons and armor um a link which they eventually sort of lets them down and they have to as you say go back on um old traditional ways but if we just mentioned the villain of the piece, because as you say, there's this link between humanity and machine. And I think this story has the most memorable villain in this volume, I, w- I would say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, and it really is the encounters with him that are the ones that are kind of most etched in, in my mind. So essentially there is there is a corporation and it, it's one of these kind of corporate espionage kind of stories initially, but it's revealed that... Um, the the head of the Tauka Corporation is is this this character Tauka and when Inaba and Shimura eventually confront him at the headquarters of the corporation, there's a particularly striking kind of sequence of panels where it's revealed that he's really taken this kind of uh, body modification biotechnology to its kind of logical conclusion, and he's kind of fully 
melded with the technology in the building that he's in and he's controlling every aspect of his corporate empire and he's kind of suspended it's like the famous uh, leonardo uh, depiction of man that he's completely you know wired in and slowly but surely aspects of his corporeal kind of human flesh are being increasingly replaced by technology and there's a, a, a particularly striking panel that i may return to later where it kind of live in front of Shimura and Inaba, almost as if to kind of uh, make a show of it. He replaces two of his fingers with uh, robotic fingers. And he, even when he realizes that they've skirted protocol in order to come and uh, challenge him directly, he immediately hyperlinks to the chief judge of Hondo City and turfs them out. And it's clear that he seems to literally be able to make material like matter move so when when they arrive there's a there's a memorable scene where the the uh the floor moves and two chairs emerge out of metal for inaba and shimura to sit down on and and yeah i mean he's an incredibly uh striking villain and it, and he does come back later in the stories where um a cult around him grows of people years later who believe that his kind of transhumanism shouldn't have been forsaken and it should be continued on. And there, there ends up being a cult of Taoka that returns to, uh, to plague in Arbor in some of the later stories. And I'm going to just bring forward the art section a little bit from our notes and say, we have to mention, obviously, for this particular story, Frank Quietly's artwork. Um, I'm guessing, I mean, I don't know how they work together, Robbie and Frank, but I'm guessing that they both had um, some strong vibes of manga, Akira in particularly. Akira was the sort of late 80s, the, the movie version, I think. Was that right? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I would have... A bit earlier. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, I, I saw the anime before I saw the manga because my I had a younger brother... And being brothers, you always have that thing where, you know, the thing that one of you's into, the other isn't. And my younger brother was really big into anime. And he had a lot of the stuff that was out on VHS that was confusingly called manga. Do you remember? It had that logo, the cross yeah. that said manga, even though it was anime. <laughs> it was a bit confusing. But he had um, he had Akira, Giver, Dominion Tank Police, Vampire Hunter D, a whole bunch of that, Appleseed, a whole bunch of that era of stuff. So I, through watching it with him, I was sort of familiar. But I hadn't, I hadn't really more because it wasn't available. I hadn't managed to get hold of manga comics. The, the only exception to that was Lone Wolf and Cub, which was coming out in those strange. They were like kind of little Gideon's Bible-sized yeah, yes, editions, yeah. which I mean, I think because those had Frank Miller covers. I think is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I knew that there was that linkage with Miller, but yeah, I, I mentioned to you, I'd be I'd be interested to hear, you know, because you were you were probably there and kind of experiencing it more firsthand in terms of the actual manga on the page than I was. Well, the one that it makes me think of, um, and it's twenty twenty three, and I can't seem to do an episode of this podcast this year without mentioning Frank Miller's Ronin. Um, a comic from the 80s, which is uh, has a very similar feel, I think, to the Shimura story. Um, I mean, let's, let's just say they're both heavily, I think, influenced by that sort of stuff. But Frank Quitely's artwork is, of course, as it always seems to be, it's just spectacular, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. And again, that was one of the things, you know, we discussed the kind of the content that gripped me before. But, you know, I, I literally have uh, my, my I rebought the copy of the, the magazine with it in. And the magazine, it, it's it's sort of it's bigger. It's that bigger format than the trade paperback. And the colours of these old magazines are just amazing. And particularly, I mean, the quietly stuff, it just leapt off the page the color palette's amazing his line is incredible i think i mentioned to you it kind of reminds you of merbius but it's also very much its own thing and yeah it's just incredible and the other the other thing that really stands out is um and again because i've been going back and reading lots of manga recently as a result of reading this and knowing that this was coming up i've actually been engaging with manga more than i ever have before and one of the things that's in a lot of manga are these kind of large uh, sound effects and quietly does this a lot. There are these amazing fooms and booms that are kind of huge, almost that you can almost feel them. They almost feel three dimensional and they seem to kind of knock the characters around the panels. Um, and yeah, yeah, just extraordinary and brilliant. And 
through my kind of Warren Ellis collect connection, I read The Authority, which he went on to do with Miller, I think, after the quietly um sorry after the uh, it was hitch and ellis to begin with and then quietly and, and miller, then Mark miller yeah. yeah and so and, and so i kind of i i got more quietly here and there but it really stuck with me both in this story and also in the magazine at a similar time there was the guy the the cowboy with the big gun the missionary man which was another quietly one so i, I it's 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 really that era quietly and then a little bit of the authority are really my only exposure to it, but they were just, you know, incredibly formative and have always just stood the test of time. So that's another real big reason why I really was interested in sort of dwelling on the Shimura story and choosing this this um, collection. There's, I'm looking at the fifth page of the first Shimura story, where, as you say, the two judges are sort of caught up in an explosion where the wall of a building blows out. And it's almost as if that foom sound effect is what's causing the explosion and knocking them off their bikes, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's brilliant. They're, they're, it is literally the, the the big O seems to be what's forcing them off their bikes into the air. Yeah. And then simultaneous to that, there's the uh, the actual three D lettering of the name of the corporation. It's kind of getting mixed into the the uh, into the sound effect bubble. Yeah, it's brilliant. And just the, the way that he draws in that panel, the way that he's done the, the smoke and the fire, just yeah. I mean, it's just brilliant. I could you know I could sit and look at this for a long time and the, the reproduction is really good in the um in the trade paperback it works quite well on that because i do love it on the matte paper in the magazine but it also works really well with the uh, the gloss finish that you get in the uh, in the trade paperback yeah brilliant okay we'll come back to the art in a moment and talk about some of the other art in the book um and how you know how well it all stands up um we've hinted at it because we both had some thoughts or some sort of issues about British comics and their depiction of other countries. And of course, for Dread's World, we've constantly had this idea that there's there's judges in other countries and each one gets their own sort of different uniform and their different sort of slightly stereotypical sort of behaviours based on um, our perceptions of other countries. And of course, at this time, we were our pop culture was deep in a fascination with Japanese culture, but there's also, as you say, there's that slight othering that's a problem at times, isn't there? Yeah, I think so. And as we've kind of hinted at, I think it's 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 probably more uh, I have to use the p word <laughs> problematic in the uh, in the initial story that was in the prog, which is a bit earlier. I do think, as we said, kind of Morrison maybe handles it a little more deftly. Um, but in the initial story, often you could kind of see what they're going for, but it reading it with 2023 eyes falls a little bit flat. So a lot of the text boxes in the initial uh, story are written in a kind of an approximation of kind of Japanese English that you would hear in kind of like late 80s, early 90s kind of action films. Like if there was a, you know, like a Japanese kind of a takeaway scene in like a Kurt Russell film, it's like that sort of voice. And there's a lot of kind of um, casual terminology. And and having done my kind of complete Case Files reread, it's not the first time that that kind of Eastern culture has been stereotyped in that way because there's the, the Stan Lee stories the Shogun Warlord of G and the tone throughout that kind of, I guess, mid eighties ish period. It's always kind of quite similar. It's, it's handled not as deftly as it could be. And it kind of leans quite heavily more on kind of the the stereotype than the slightly more kind of reverent homage. I think you get a bit more in the Morrison stories and it certainly does read slightly problematically. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, as I say, I think this was a problem for well, problem on both sides of the Atlantic, the British comics and American comics, I think. Um, I, you know, we all love John Wagner on this podcast, but I think he himself admits that um, some of the stuff he wrote in the eighties for two thousand AD and other British comics now look. You look back on it and it looks a bit dodgy. Um, Robbie Morrison, as you say, seems to probably handle it better. That five years on. Um, things have got a little bit more understood and respectful. Things like Akira have become mainstream. And he seems to, as you say, um, has got a better handle on it and handles it with a little bit more, what's the word, less problematic. Yeah, slightly deft to touch, perhaps. Yeah. 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 
We've mentioned Frank Miller, obviously. I've mentioned Ronin. He was, of course, a huge proponent of Lone Wolf and Cub, as you say. He was doing the covers for those reprints of it. Uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, which has come back um, basically as the Mandalorian these days. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, although, I mean, like I said, I've kind of re-engaged with manga again now. And, I I mean... those those stories, even though they are kind of archetypical in tales of older time, there's one I've been reading called Vagabond that is, you know, I mean, it's very similar to, <laughs> to Lone Wolf and Cub, but it's equally brilliant. Uh, it's Inoue, that one. And, you know, it, it has been really kind of eye-opening. I think, because I, I read Western comics, I I don't know if I, I don't know if it, it was anything to do with kind of that relationship a bit being the thing my brother was into, but I just did not read the actual manga on the page. And now that I've kind of got into it in the last six months, it's such a huge world. And there's another podcast I've uh, discovered called Manga Splaining. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it's very good. It's um, Chip Zadarsky who writes uh, comics for Image. He's the, the conceit is that he's he's the one that's being manga splained to <laughs> by uh, by three others who are they're all um, Americans and Canadians, but the other three are, are well versed in manga, and they do a book and episode that they're trying to kind of uh, introduce him to. And the, the sheer range of topics that are covered in manga, these kind of everyday slice of life stories, uh, almost kind of meta-textual kind of people learning to write manga and getting into the manga industry and what that means and how challenging it can be, right through to the kind of the more serious stuff. I know that you did um, Barefoot Gen with Tony, and uh, yeah, I mean, that is just incredibly heavy and over reading there's another uh i've not read the onward to our noble death but there's onwards towards our yeah, noble death. uh yeah. i i couldn't do another heavy one after barefoot again but i have recently picked up showa i think it's called which again is it looks like another kind of heavy read so you've got these amazing kind of vast historical you know fictional kind of but rooted in real world histories that are, yeah and the art incredible and as a kind of a someone that likes collecting physical things that these amazing kind of hardback kind of reaches that are taking up increasing amounts of shell space let me ask you about another problematical um issue in this first collection because the second story featuring robbie morrison and frank quietly is the rather unfortunate babes with big bazookas yes anything this is probably <laughs> yeah well because i think i mean this was i think i mentioned to you in in some ways i mean uh, the stuff in the wagner story it, it's unfortunate but it does kind of feel of its time and i think if we went back and looked at not just british comics but british culture i think if we if we watched oh, a, yeah. if we watched a sitcom from the 80s yeah. from that period i mean that would that would almost seem tasteful <laughs> compared to some of the stuff that was going on on tv at the time but so you know it not necessarily could be forgiven but could be understood but having just said that kind of morrison handles a lot of the uh the archetypes and the stereotypes maybe a little more deftly i think the problem with the base with big bazookas it's a it's a one it's a kind of a one and done one shot kind of deal but that kind of panders more to kind of yeah, fairly kind of sexist kind of misogynist stereotypes that actually kind of in some ways rub me up the wrong way more than the uh than the initial story i mean it, it's a fairly um you know, simple tale. They're a kind of, uh, well, it's all in the, it's all in the title. <laughs> there are, there are women that, if you think about those kind of American, uh, calendars that you occasionally see where there's a lady, a scantily clad lady with a large, uh, uh, semi-automatic weapon <laughs> selling the weapon. Mm-hmm. This is, this is that, but in a kind of, uh, a, a kind of a fashion show kind of scenario. And the the women do turn the guns on the on the people, um, but yeah, that that one that one left a bit of a kind of a, a, sour, a sour taste in my mouth. And they do all kind of uh, end up getting beaten up. Although it does have one amazing panel in where they're bursting out of the building on the bikes. Yeah. Uh, so again, because this is this is still um, quietly in here, isn't it? So the art the art is still great. Uh, but yeah, I found the. Um, the subject matter a bit troubling. Um, yeah, the pool. What he does with the bike scenes is very sort of Akira in a way, uh, particularly there's some overhead shots of um, the big judges' bikes that look like uh, that famous scene from Akira. But yeah, this is the this this is <laughs> unfortunate. I'm I'm that guy who doesn't like when this appears on the front cover of 
the comics when I go into the local news agent to pick them up because it's when they look at you and they go, oh yeah, that's why you buy them. <laughs> yeah. Thinking, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Always seems to be the way. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's move away from difficult issues and talk about the art in general. We start with Colin McNeil on the first story. Yes. And uh, whatever qualms we may have about some of the tone and content, the art is, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, as I said, I've kind of been, I did this big complete case files read through and yeah, I mean, his stuff always really stands out, uh, particularly in terms of in this kind of color palette, it like totally pops. Um, and brilliant, the actual kind of like the cityscapes, the brilliant kind of like, you know, floating, hovering vehicles that are going on in the background of panels, the, um, because in, in a way, because it's the first story, he kind of sets the tone. And obviously, there are uh, you know, it's it's analogous to Mega City One, but as we spoke about with the architecture, it definitely does have its own vibe. And I think that kind of purpley, bluey kind of palette that's going on in a lot of the um, a lot of the panels of the of the kind of skyline really kind of gives it a great vibe. And as I hinted at earlier, the bikes do kind of change over time, but this initial bike is also really cool. It's the closest to a kind of um, like a jet bike that goes along the floor. It's got like an amazing kind of a, a front with a kind of a, the, the red rising sun over the, uh, over the front. Um, and it has this kind of um, a sleeper agent who's gone rogue, essentially uh, is the, the kind of the MacGuffin that gets dread there to kind of uh, to go and deal with things. And he's wandering around again, causing many kind of uh, explosions and deaths. And there are some, uh, some memorable uh, assassination moments that this uh, sleeper agent partakes in. Again, in slightly stereotypical uh, environs, often there's uh, sumo, sumo matches and uh, samurai sword skewerings aplenty, let's say. Geisha housing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, it does, of course, I mean, I'm drifting slightly from the art, but it does feature sort of classic John Wagner dread encountering, as you've said earlier, sort of like, you know, his opposite number mm. and then afterwards dread saying to the chief judge you know how the chief judge says how did you know he would do that and dread says well that's what i would do you know yes 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 the, the, the resolution it feels like we've seen that one before doesn't it where dread does yeah. his preemptive move and uh either technologically or chemically comes up with uh you know the, the preemptive move he plays his his dread 5d chess and comes out on top yeah. While also kind of uh, kind of making uh, Sadu kind of feel like um, he's he's kind of come out on top as well. So yeah, it's a good uh, classic dread five D chess resolution there. And as you say, yeah, it's the cover I've got back there. I've been slowly collecting progs, and the the cover of the prog is yeah is just um, Sadu and Dread facing off as mirror images in their uh, their opposite number uniforms. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing stuff. Um, so that's the first one, Colin McNeil. Frank Quietly we've talked about, but I mean, just to say that his his line work, his colours, his action, um, his close-ups of uh, various faces is wonderful. And then what he does with the sound effects is just yeah, a next level. Yeah. You know? there's, a, there's another one just on, on the second page. There's, there's a kind of a, a boom explosion, and the boom is this round ball of boom. Yeah, it's just brilliant. Needs to, needs yeah. to seem to be believed, and just stuff like um, the the helmet that the Hondo judges wear has this kind of sheer panel, and he often does like sort of brilliant reflections in the panel, and not just your kind of like your dread zigzag line. This is like you know the person they're speaking to is kind of reflected murkily in the visor. Yeah, it's just yeah, brilliant. I know him best because obviously, as you said, he went on to American Comics. I know him best for All Star Superman, right. which will be coming up on the podcast at some point in the future. Hopefully, somebody's picked it. Uh, you say you followed him into the Authority. Yes, yeah, that was that was the main thing that I kind of saw him out, and after that, and I've scratched my noggin. I don't think because I didn't like I was saying there was this kind of transition I did where I kind of moved away from kind of superhero i i kind of almost swerved american superhero comics by kind of going the vertigo route into the more independent drawn and quarterly kind of fantagraphics route but because i was this kind of ellis fanboy i would i would usually buy anything i saw of his so that was that was how i kind of got some quietly doing wild storm superhero stuff and yeah i mean it's, it's great stuff <laughs> i very much enjoyed it 
Um, I think um, there's another panel that I feel I must mention because this is one of the other ones that was uh, memorable, but not for being um, horrific as the other panels. So this this isn't quite a grail, grail page panel, but there's one scene where Inaba's in the shower and she she's naked, but but sort of tastefully naked. And um, there's a... a, a a sort of a, a nice boob shot that was memorable for 10 year old me. But I will also never forget that next to her in the shower is a rather large judge who has a rather large bum that kind of offsets the rather nice uh, Inaba in the shower photo. And both of those things are somehow in my memory. So then um, we've got two other stories towards the end of the book uh, with art by Andy Clark and then by Neil Googe, of course, who's now um, I think better known or best known for survival geeks. Um, what about the art on those two? Uh, yeah, I think I think it was fine. I must admit, I'm not particularly familiar with either of them beyond this work. I thought the Andy Clark stuff was serviceable. I very much like one of the actual standout panels of the whole book, though, is his first panel that starts Hondo City, and you get the skyline, and that's great and very Merbius-like. Um, yes. So that is that is a brilliant brilliant panel uh, and yeah i think it works this is the one where dread dread pops up again in, in this one yeah. um and yeah he, yeah he does a good dread and it and uh yeah there's um and shimura's back and he gives shimura a new look this is shimura in his kind of uh rogue trader ronin phase with yeah. some uh with some new weaponry because we moved right forward this is as we say kind of mid 2000s now um and yeah yeah it was good i must admit i think i preferred the 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 deus ex andy clark stuff which has a really good so this is where uh, as i mentioned you've got kind of uh, the legacy of tauka many years later with this kind of cult of kind of technologically modified villains and there's a really brilliant um, initial scene where one of the baddies, he's, he's on a train and his whole head opens up and uh, it kind of explodes and, and, well, basically bodies go absolutely everywhere. And again, it almost reminds me, there was another Warren Ellis book that was on Avatar, the name of which is escaping me now, possibly called Strange Kiss, I seem to remember, that had a similarly bloody just like mass kind of lacerating moment but that that's that's an incredible double page spread that yes um yeah i'm looking at that now and it's yeah. like, i forgot about that story but yes you're quite right that's astonishing yeah the work on that and the mayhem that it causes <laughs> yeah. this exploding head yes yeah and he he also gives um inaba quite a cool new look she's kind of gone a bit more uh almost like a susie in the banshees kind of uh shock afro like sort of strewel peter kind of hair and then and as i say yeah the taoka kind of looms large over that story so i quite like that that linked back to my uh my old favorite the initial shimura story yeah yeah so i think i think it works i think the the bars just set so high by those initial two stories with that beautiful kind of classic period mcneil and then yeah just stellar quietly that's a lot to live up to so in the context of the book it's it's yeah you know but I, I think the other thing that's definitely worth mentioning there is when you get to the gooch interestingly out of all of them that storm almost seems the closest to manga influenced work and it reminds me a lot of a book i did read back in the day i don't know if you remember it it was on um i think it was either top cow or cliffhanger one of those kind of um comics companies it was called battle chasers Joe Madreria, I think it was. And there was another one called Crimson that was kind of vampires. And that was, that was, you know, US comics, but clearly like really heavily manga influenced. And I was into both of those. And this reminded me a lot of that. I mean, the subject matter is a bit different. Yeah, it's actually quite close to Battle Chasers. Lots of kind of like mechy kind of suits. And it seems the most influenced by kind of like manga directly in terms of the art style. I'm looking at the first two pages of Neil Googe's, um story with Robbie Morrison, Hondo City Justice. Mm. And I'm thinking that when you get, when you're an artist who gets a Hondo City story, you want to make those first two pages spectacular, it seems. Yes. You know? Yes. <laughs> because yeah. it's fan- those are fantastic as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he does seem, in a way, the most manga artist in here. Um, he gets to introduce a new cadet judge, Ashahara, who yes. is also... She's a she's a like a psychic teen, 
very Anderson, very Akira as well, isn't she? Yes, yeah. So we kind of get introduced into that story to, as I sort of hinted at earlier, the kind of academy that she's come from. And there is a kind of like an Akira-esque link that kind of links kind of like nuclear kind of power to the ability for psionics. And I'm pretty sure the academy is even called the Otomo Academy, which must be a link to a head nod to, to Akira very directly. Um, and there are some, fa- there's a, a fairly memorable trifecta of big bads in this story as well, uh, who, who emerge when you see their kind of uh, their real form, they're able to cloak themselves, but when they're revealed, they make a, a pretty good trio. One of, one of them slightly reminiscent of uh kind of Hellboy or something from Hellboy. <laughs> and the other, the other two are fairly unique. Uh, I, won't, I don't think I'll go into spoilers because people should read it and, uh, and see. It's pretty good. Um, so, yeah, I, I, enjoy, I, I, I definitely enjoyed this story. I thought this was tremendous fun, and I really enjoyed Neil Googe's art on this as well. I think he's he perhaps comes the closest in the book to matching Frank quietly. Um, and I think it's interesting that they all want to stamp their authority on Hondo City with their first two pages by the looks of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm guessing that your favourite art from the book is probably that first Shimura story, is it? Yes, that's that's right. Yeah, so sort of talking about kind of Grail Grail moment. The um, I already hinted at. There's that particular panel where you see Tauka literally slicing off uh, his 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 human fingers so that they're in real time replaced with cybernetics, and you see the the cut off fingers are in a kind of a surgical tray lying there with bones still protruding. <laughs> and that really stuck in my memory. And then there's um, the other panel, the, even more so in a way, I don't know why this always stuck with me so much, is that, as I mentioned, he kind of um, he has the ability to kind of just control matter and kind of infuse it with his essence. And he seems to be able to just c- to control anything like uh, fibre optic cables. And there's a scene where we're in a boardroom and uh, his his former uh, kind of left-hand uh, lieutenant is kind of defected and he's managed to kind of track her down to this boardroom and literally the fiber optics come creeping out through the floor and it's just, again, quietly just amazing. You, you somehow get the feeling that the other characters in the room don't realise because the fibre optics is kind of creeping up behind but then all of a sudden a whole kind of tranche of fibre optics come up through the trunk of one of the uh, enforcers and he's completely impaled but the fiber optics that have impaled him then become Tauka's face and he st- he starts saying you have betrayed me <laughs> to his lieutenant who's betrayed him and that just always kind of like massively sticks with me just like incredibly inventive it would be amazing to know what Morrison's script said and how quietly whether that had just was pure quietly or whether that was a direction from Morrison, but either way, incredibly memorable. That stuck with me forever. Um, and then, yeah, the other amazing image is the, the magazine that I've rebought that has this Shimura on the um, the Red Rising Sun. So this is the cover to magazine issue thirty nine from October nineteen ninety three. And if you could get, I mean, I, I see at some point they must have done that as a poster with it just with it just as a white background because that's just yeah, brilliant, brilliant image, yeah. So if you've got the digital version like I have, it's pages 41 and 47 of the digital are the two Frank Quietly full pages um, of Teoka and his terrible <laughs> body horror. Yeah. Um, literally body horror in places. And then the magazine, because I've got the covers at the back of my digital version, and that was magazine 39. That's right, yeah. And as you say, that's a fantastic Shimura cover. Uh, top down, which is something I think you have to do. Uh, it's that Akira top down image of the uh, the motorbike that seems to do it, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, him him walking back to the motorbike with his uh, jacket. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, and it's you know it's you've you've held up your actual copy in front of us, so you know it stands out well because it's got the white background. You got the red. Uh, Rising Sun, some great work with Shadow in there as well, and the Samurai Sword sort of tipping into the Judge Dread logo as well. Mm. It's got it all. Yeah, that, yeah. That cover. Almost, almost a precursor to the uh, the color palette that's on the Hachette. Some of those Hachette uh, yeah. compilations. It's that black, red, and white that always works well. Great, com- yeah. great, great combo. 
I quite like the uh, Magazine 301 cover by Frank Quietly, um, uh, which is just an Inaba cover. It's not, it's not as memorable as the Shimura cover that you've got or you've chosen. But yeah, I would quite choose that one. Although, although actually, now thinking about it, I'm thinking I want a Frank Quietly um, sound effect. <laughs> I did. I, I love that in that cover that you've mentioned, Quietly has actually signed uh, his signatures in the sword hilt. If you look yeah. closely, yeah, which is a great, great little touch. Yeah. Great stuff. So those are going to be the Grail pages. I will um, put all these on the socials when this episode comes out in early September. Um, and you can see what we've been talking about or get yourself a copy of the digital. Because uh, I think the trade paperback is now just second-hand markets it doesn't seem to be on the 2000 ad store that's right yeah i managed to pick up a copy of it on abe for 15 quid but i have seen it going for a lot more and i the shimura trade that i mentioned that i think has a couple of stories that aren't collected in the two that are on the rebellion site that one seems to go for quite a bit seems to be going for 30 quid plus regularly um but but that said the honda city justice trade uh i got regular price from rebellion so okay. they must have had copies at least a few months ago they had copies of it right. so uh i bought it digitally for 9.99 um i'll mention that volume 60 you mentioned the hachette and it's black and white and red themed covers the judge dread mega collection volume 60 is hondo city justice which includes i think the stories we've been talking about and some more uh hondo city stories as well I haven't got that one, but I, I did notice that one. And then you've mentioned Honda City Justice, also available for nine ninety nine from Rebellion in digital. Um, I won't say too much about that one because that might come up again at some point in the future, James. Correct, yeah. I thought we might uh, make a date to return to Hondo in the future. Go back to Honda <laughs> yeah, City. Yeah, that's right. Anything else you wanted to mention about this splendid collection of stories, uh, James? Uh, I don't think so, other than that if um, if for any reason uh, say that you're just a prog reader who didn't really uh, engage as much with the Meg, because uh, I know some people do take that approach, that it's, it is a great collection. And for 9.99 digital, I, I think you can really go wrong. It's great stuff, even if even if only for those um, first couple of stories. But yeah, like I say, I, I enjoyed all, all the stories in it. And I think they all link together and there is like a nice kind of thematic theme. And it's just, a, it's a space within the wider world of Judge Dredd that I've just always enjoyed. And it was great to kind of go back there. And we've followed Dredd to some other cities recently, to Emerald Isle and now to Hondo City. So yes, uh, worth picking up and having a look at it. And the Frank Quietly artwork is just um, spectacular. And what he can do with a panel and a sound effect is astonishing. Wonderful stuff. Yeah, brilliant. So... Guest projects. Now, you mentioned that, you know, you when you were young, you were getting involved in comics and various, uh, you had various creators that you were following. Um, you also ended up somehow or other on the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd film set, am I right? That's that's true. <laughs> I was very young, because uh, you'll remember better than me. Did it come out in 93? 95, I think. Oh, is it that? So I would have been 10 or 11. So the story there was, my, so my old man was a builder. Uh, and he didn't do domestic work, he did commercial work. Uh, and one of the contracts that he had for a great many years was the maintenance contract at Shepperton Studios. So as a, as a young boy, I went to see the set where they did uh, Thomas the Tank Engine and Tugs, which I was a huge fan of, which was like Thomas the Tank, but with boats, um, which I remember very well. And I had, in fact, that makes a lot of sense because I, I already knew. So this, the, the, um, the magazine issues we were talking about are 93-ish, so I was already engaged by them. So I would have known. And I think I'm pretty sure, because this was kind of, I, I definitely wouldn't have had the internet then. So I don't think I would, I think the first I would have heard of there even being a Judge Dredd film was my dad coming back from Shepherdson Studios and saying, that Judge, Judge Dredd is happening here. He's, there's this big bike. Do you want to come and see it? And annoyingly, there is because uh, they also made Labyrinth, the David Bowie film there. And there's a, there is apparently a picture of me not in David Bowie's arms quite, but near David Bowie as a baby when my dad took me onto the set when they were filming Labyrinth when I was about one. <laughs> but uh, I returned to the set with no slides alone. But I did get to sit on the bike, so I, I sat on one of those uh, Stallone dread lawmasters so that was that was how i ended up there 
And then my, I had my two other tails, but I thought maybe I'd save one for when we returned to Hondo. Um, yeah. But my, my other uh, kind of 2000 AD interface was that, as I mentioned, I was, yeah, I was a big, big Garth Ennis fan. And in the letters page in Preacher, because I was buying the singles, he'd mentioned, as we all know, he's a huge British War Comics fan. And this is where that box of my dad's old uh, commandos comes in. He was after a few certain back issues. And it just so happened, I looked at my dad's box and a couple that he was after, I had. So I posted them off to him, not really even expecting to um, to hear anything back. And uh, one day I returned home from school and there was a package waiting for me, which was, I was like, oh, what's this? And I opened it up and inside was a hand-annotated, typed script for an issue of Preacher, a signed copy of uh, the Hitman special that was called Hitman Thousand or something where it's in the future, uh, and an amazing uh, letter from Garth, or not a letter, even better, it was a postcard, incredibly Garth Ennis. It was a postcard of uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and on the back he'd uh, replied to some questions I'd asked him uh, about what books had influenced him. Uh, and he mentioned Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurty and a book that to this day is one of my favourite books, uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Rest in peace to Cormac McCarthy, passed away recently. Uh, to this day, one of my absolute favourite novels. So, yes, so cheers to Garth. Next time you speak to him, you can mention that he made uh, 14-year-old James Knight a very happy boy. And I have. I managed to dig out my gosh letter for the next time I'll see if I could dig out my preacher script so that I could at least show you... <laughs> Uh, so yeah, those are my my 2000 AD uh, kind of uh, early early interfaces. So I love stories of 2000 AD creators being sort of like you know very good and replying to letters and encouraging people in their writing and artwork and so on. I think that's great. And Garth has always been such a friendly uh, presence uh, and still is, you know, which is amazing. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And I've been really enjoying um, catching up with the stuff he's doing with the, the new battle and stuff. Yeah, it's been great re-engaging with him through his comics. Film sets are funny places that people sometimes aren't allowed to take pictures on. Was your dad allowed to take pictures of you on uh, Stallone's bike? Well, it's funny because this 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 Bowie Labyrinth set, there is this this photo, but there is no photographic evidence, unfortunately. Right. So it, it could well be that by that point, because if you think Labyrinth would have been much earlier, that would have been in the 80s. But yeah, quite possibly by the time they got to Dread, maybe it was no photos on set. That could that could well be why. I I must admit I asked my dad and he was like I I, I don't remember what you're talking about. He was like I don't have a clue what you're talking about. He was like I remember Thomas the Tank, but I don't remember that one. <laughs> and we just mentioned one other thing to your your day job, as it were, James, because we've had a film archivist uh, Tony Richards on the podcast. You work at the National Sound Archive? That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm always kind of keen to plug it because lots of people don't even know that the National Sound Archive exists. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the National Sound Archive has existed since the early 20th century, um, but for a great many years it was on Exhibition Road near the Victoria and Albert Museum in a, essentially kind of an old, an old house. Uh, but the Sound Archive kind of outgrew that space. And when the British Library moved out of the British Museum to its current site in St Pancras, uh, the National Sound Archive moved uh, to the we merged with the British Library essentially, uh, so we still exist to a certain extent autonomous as a kind of autonomous island within the wider British Library uh, kind of eco space. Um, but yeah, we I work with um, the unpublished material, uh, so we have about somewhere in the region of uh, almost a million analog carriers of unpublished sound recordings that we are. Uh, digitizing and working our way through we're over halfway there now uh, and you could go to sounds.bl.uk and you can uh, listen to uh, some of the sounds we're actually in a phase of transition now where we're moving to a new website so the website's a bit shonky but have a dig around and there is um, all the copyright free material that we digitize we try and make available immediately online uh, but if you look on the catalog that is sammy sma S-A-M-I, pardon me, sound and moving image, sammy.bl.uk. That's the catalogue. And if you plug things into the catalogue you're interested in, you'll get results. And if you can make it either down to London or if you're in the north, the British Library's second facility is at a place called Boston Spa near Weatherby. And uh, you can go into either of those locations and listen to anything that we hold. 
Um, so yeah, so I do encourage people to kind of uh, engage with it, and it's and it covers the gamut of all recorded sound, all the way back from uh, a cylinder recording of Florence Nightingale that we retransferred the other day with a new cylinder player. Uh, that's held on a wax cylinder all the way through to digital recordings now and everything from oral history to wildlife recordings to, you know, pop music recordings, poetry, you name it, we've got it. <laughs> Fantastic. And you do your own, uh, talking about music, you have your own radio show as well, I think. Yes, I do, yeah. It's it's actually on hiatus now because I now have kids and I'm doing things like moving house. <laughs> <laughs> but there are seven years' worth of shows. If you look up Low Bias, I'll uh, send a link to Eamon. There are seven years' worth of shows archived Low Bias on NTS Radio. Uh, and it's, if you like, uh, I always describe it as it's uh, trippy, ambient, psychedelic uh, music with no beats in the first hour and then trippy ambient psychedelic music with beats in the second hour so if that sounds like it floats your boat have a listen if not i won't be offended fair enough no worries well i will put all the links in the show notes for this episode so people can go and see uh what you've been doing at the sound archive and also have a look at your own radio show as well James, thank you so much for coming on and discussing uh, Hondo City Law and in particular the Robbie Morrison and Frank Quietly stuff, which was just fantastic. And for turning me on to those wonderful sound effects. <laughs> oh, no, it's absolutely my pleasure, Eamon. Like I said, when I kind of re-engaged, listening to your podcast, The Space Spinner was what really kind of helped hook me back in. So it's a, a pleasure and a privilege to appear in the book club. Fantastic. And James Knight will return with Hondo City Justice at some point in the future. Excellent. I look forward to it. You've got another anecdote for us next time as well. I do. I'll save, I'll save that one up. A, a well-loved 2018 uh, creator. We'll, we'll, we'll trial it, get people excited. <laughs> and thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. Find all the links at megacitybookclub.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook, Mastodon, possibly on threads, uh, but also on the 2018 forums. Uh, and email me mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you've got any questions about the podcast or you've got a book of your own that you'd like to come on and discuss so until next time when we're passing judgment on another great book uh, it's goodbye from me and and goodbye from me 